0: Welcome back, everybody. Um, So excited to have our guest here. I mean, he's responsible for so much good stuff, good content out in the world. (laughs) Everything from the Thin Blue Line, which, you know, go back and watch that, by the way. You talk about things that hold up. Fog of War, so many things, so much good stuff out there. But his latest, uh, The Pigeon Tunnels, fascinating interview with uh, David Cornwell, aka Jean Lacar, and it is now streaming on Apple Plus, and it is really very, very like all of his work, very intriguing. Errol Morris, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you for being here, sir. Thank you for having me on the air. Such an interesting subject. It was almost a non sequitur. I was like, wait, John Lacar, who's where did this come from? <laughs> you know, when I saw that, you know, that this thing now exists in the world that somebody's talking to Jean Le Carre. How did this come about? Sorry to be a
1: pedant here, but it's Jean Le Carre.
0: Oh, Jean Le Carre. Cause I've heard different pronunciations of it. So I wasn't oh, sure. Oh, he that. has an accent on the E. Yes, exactly. Jean Le Carre. Well, it's a made up name anyway. So. <laughs> it is. Uh, tell us, uh, I always like to know how these things come about, you know, Um. Well, let me ask you this: Um, How long have you wanted to speak to to uh, to
1: him? Well, he's dead now, so it's really impossible to talk to him. Right. I uh, had a producer friend who was working on a movie
2: Mm -hmm.
1: with uh, David Cornwell, John Le Carre—take your pick. Uh, They were doing a remake of Little Drummer Girl, Mm -hmm. and P.J. Van Sandwick, producer, suggested that I should do a film with David himself. Mm -hmm. And I had read his memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, Mm -hmm. and loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's one of my favorite of his books. and. So I suggested, let's do the pigeon tunnel. Yeah. And I met him, met him at his house in Hampstead. I liked him. Mercifully, I think he may have liked me, his mm-hmm. level of reciprocity. Yeah. And often people will tell me, well, I have a really great idea for a movie. And I'll say, well, you have a great idea of how to pay for it.
0: Right, right, right.
1: um, In this case, it was a great idea for a movie and a great idea uh, how to pay for it. Apple was interested. Mm. So we had a viable project.
0: Yeah. And did you have a conversation with him before the cameras were rolling or was your conversation with him mainly in front of the cameras?
1: I prefer the latter. Yeah. Had I met him and talked to him prior to filming him, I had, but I like. To keep that conversation uh, at a minimum.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. why leave everything on the floor, a conversation where there are no cameras present? Yeah. Be able to record everything. At least I do.
0: Yeah. You don't want to try to recreate a surprise. You
1: can't recreate anything, you just have to do it or not do it.
0: Yeah. And he's such an interesting subject. I, I thought one of his early lines when he was talking about interrogating people, uh, you need to know something about the ambitions of the people you're talking to. I thought was interesting uh, because you, the documentary starts off with uh him, you know, having appreciation for you, I think, you know, in the beginning and wanting, you know, he wanted to know where you were coming from, I think, from this documentary it seemed like in the beginning too. It was kind of interesting.
1: I've never done an an interview quite like that. Yeah. Where the interviewee is basically interviewing me. (laughs) Yes, yes. He's asking me quite explicitly, who are you? Yes. And I tell him, I'm not sure I can answer such a question. Not because I don't want to. Maybe I can't. Maybe I can't answer the question, who are you? Um, I don't know who I am. I might be somebody, but Mm -hmm. I may be pretty much unknown to myself as well as to others, even more so than with others. And then he does something even more peculiar for me, this suggestion that interviews and interrogations might be one and the same, which I've thought— a lot about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And well, you tell me? See, I'm going to start interviewing you. <laughs> well, I would suggest that
0: the stakes are vastly different in an interrogation and an interview. You know, that's the difference to me. You know, I mean, of course, there are stakes with making a movie <laughs> interview with you got to finish this thing and have a product at the end. There you go. But those are different stakes than an interrogation about someone who may betraying their country, or, you know, there's information which could lead to the deaths of, you know, a certain amount of people. Those are different stakes to me. Yes. You know, and also could lead to your own death, possibly, you know, this interrogation.
1: Oh, wait a second. You're threatening me now. No, yes, this interrogation, exactly.
0: But, but that's what's interesting about that type of person, you know, when you're talking to them, the types of interrogations they may or may not have been into. I mean, the whole spy. I was fascinated because, unlike this whole spy part of his life or career, he kind of he kind of brushes by it a little bit. I, I you know, but to me, that's. I don't know if you can just brush by that. You know. There's a lot of uh, stuff in there, it seems like, that's interesting and fascinating.
1: Absolutely. He does talk about it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, at least to me. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was a spy for a certain amount of time. How long, we don't really know. Right. I was a private detective for a certain amount of time. I can tell you for how long I was a private detective. I was a private detective, and then I got money to start work on a film that ultimately became The Thin Blue Line.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I started that film, I kept saying, well, thank God I don't have to be a detective anymore. And, of course, that whole movie was three years of being a detective with a camera right? opposed to being a detective without a camera. Mm-hmm. And it's strange when you're working with an agenda, mm-hmm. I'm very interested in interviews. In fact, the whole experience—now you're part of
0: it—yes,
1: of doing endless interviews about the pigeon tunnel, yes, has made me think all over again about the whole process of interviewing and what it means, yes. and the whole process of interviewing versus interrogating somebody. Yeah, and when I made my first film, Gates of Heaven. Mm-hmm. I would joke about interviewing. And the joke was that I should say as little as possible. Mm -hmm. I sometimes call it the shut the fuck up school of interviewing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And the idea was to get people to talk to me Mm -hmm. and to say as little as possible to them. It was almost like the desire a stream of consciousness Uh interview, and Gates of Heaven was very much influenced by that way of thinking, Uh and all of a sudden, doing interviews for this film, call it some species of irony, I don't know what you would call it, people started Asking me about whether David was hiding things, whether he was being honest, whether he was being mm-hmm. truthful, and I never saw that as at the center of what I was doing. I just did not, not because I have no awareness of what's at stake, but because I was after something different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I shot all these films with one character. Mm. Why? Because I was interested in how my protagonist, my subject, however you want Mm -hmm. to describe them, I like protagonists. Saw themselves. Yes. Not how other people saw them. Normally you do a movie about John Le Carré, you'd interview 20 people who knew him. He's this, he's that, he's the other thing, blah, 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 blah. None of that. It's him talking about how he sees the world, how he sees himself. It's an exploration by him and me of who he imagines himself to be. Yeah. And I am rather proud of it. What can I say?
0: Yeah. His uh, his personal recollections about his childhood are very fascinating, too, because I think a lot of people do reveal themselves in those types of recollections, you know, particularly when he talked about his mother, who... I'll use the word abandoned him, you know. I think that's the the feeling that is there in that. The, I, I don't think he uses that word, but it feels like it to me. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that has an effect on a person, you know. He adopts nihilism almost very early on in his life, it seems like. It's almost... Uh, This avoidance of dealing with emotions, you know, (laughs) of something. Because he both, this is what's interesting, he both kind of has a a negative judgment about his father, but admires him at the same time and becomes him as he doesn't quite uh, approve of him all
1: at the same time. Does that seem accurate? It does indeed it yeah. not only is accurate, but it's extremely perceptive on your part.
0: Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. But it's but when people, what I like about your style too is when you allow people to to speak past the question. You know, that's when you get into revelations. I think you know because there's a there's a you know there's always the rote answers you say. You know the thing, especially if they've been doing interviews or maybe or if they haven't there's a certain line, maybe they won't cross, but if you allow them to speak past the question and just wait, you know, or or allow more to come out, you might get a little bit more that maybe even they're not aware of is creeping out. Did that seem like that was happening at all?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. The key to what I do. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm just telling you what you do, Harold. That's all I'm saying, you know. Did you have an awareness of that in the moment as that was happening?
1: Um, I would say yes and no. Uh-huh. I try to be aware of what's going on in an interview, but I'm always surprised listening to them after the fact uh-huh. of what I didn't hear. That's why you record them, I
0: guess. Yeah. What? What? Were there some I always, things? Like, by
1: the way, you yeah. know the sort of legend about. Truman Capote, a self-created legend by Truman Uh Capote about himself, that he could do these interviews, you know, hour-long interviews and just remember them verbatim. Wow. And uh, I thought there's a simple explanation for that. It's called a lie. Yes. <laughs> Pure and simple. That Can you really do that? Not in my experience you can. Maybe it just shows my inability to remember stuff that transpires in front of me. Mm-hmm. Conversations are really, really complex. And the nuances are almost endless. And I'm mm-hmm. variably surprised on listening after the fact to an interview I've done how I wasn't aware of everything. And in fact, what I was aware of is just maybe, you know, a small amount of what was going on.
0: Well, that's part of being in the moment, too, you know. I think it is. Because your attention is on them and what's happening in there. So there's a lot of things that you aren't aware of until you look back on it and kind of see it.
1: I used to joke, maybe a joke to myself, that in conducting an interview, the important thing was to look like you're listening <laughs> rather than to actually listen because, after all, you're recording it and you can play it back after the fact or look at it after the fact. But in order to keep it going, mm-hmm. it was extremely important to be engaged, to look like you were listening. Mm -hmm. involved in the moment. That's how you described it. I think that's really quite accurate.
0: Yeah, I call it active listening.
1: Active listening!
0: (laughs) Yes. There has to be... You can't just listen. You have to active listen because you're managing... There's a managing to the listening as you're listening, you know? Um, Like when I would describe stand-up comedy to people, I always said there's there's at least five things going on in my head at one time. People think you're just doing an act, but that's not quite accurate. Doing the act is the one, is one thing that's going on in my brain, but then I'm also listening to the audience and I'm going, okay, what's going on in this room right now? You know, who's, who's the trouble here? You know, what do I got to look out for? You know, So you're kind of managing the audience and then you're managing your act. You're like, okay, how much time do I have? I'm going to have to edit this because I can't do that bit. You know, that looks like I'm not going to be able to do that. Okay. So you're editing your act as you're doing it. These are all going through your head all the time. And then the, another one is uh, is just random thoughts. Oh, what am I going to do tomorrow? <laughs> you know, what am I going to do after this? <laughs> you know, it's just your mind is just going to different places while you're active listening to the audience because you have to be connected to them and your act is just an automatic pilot, you know? So, like, when I did stand-up, there's at least four things going through my head. So even in interviews, I think uh, I enjoy interviews because... There's something else happening that's present sometimes, especially with the interesting subjects, you know. And uh, when I watch interviews, you know, particularly your style too, because as people call it, voice of God talking to the person where you're not injecting yourself into it, even though he's pulling you into it in a way that's kind of interesting too. But I'm looking for what's going on with this person. Are Is he really being forthcoming with us here, you know? Is maybe, is he lying about his childhood? Is this made up? Because he's telling us who he is. He's telling us, you know, all these things. So, what am I really supposed to believe about this person?
1: Well, one thing that's interesting about John Le Carré, David Cornwell, however you want to name him, is that he often tells us, oh, you know that story I just told you? Well, that's probably not true. And interesting. I'm always, I think, amused is the right word. When people criticize my filmmaking that I don't tell them what's true and false, well, I'm terribly sorry. Often I don't know what's true and false. And maybe that's not what I'm looking for.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: looking to engage an audience in that question
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that you think about what's true and what's false. Right. Which seems to me the important thing. I have said it so often, I feel like a broken record that truth is a quest. It's not something that's handed over to you on a yeah. pattern. Okay, here, enjoy this. This is the truth. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. It's like you're engaged, call it a puzzle. We are asked to think about. Is this true? Is this false? What is this? Yeah. Is this a story that he's constructed for us, for me? Are all of our accounts in some way fabrications and stories? Mm-hmm. Um, you described it well. He, he agonizes over who he is and his past. People assume it's because he's lying. And he will maybe lying, lying to us, lying to himself as well as us Mm -hmm. at sea in some kind of phantasmagoria of his own devising. This is a guy who writes books, who writes fables, who writes stories. God knows he's written over 20 novels. He's awash in a sea of a confused sea of memories and in
0: I agree with you completely. Like people who aren't even involved in that have problems with memory and truth. Which, to me, w- I think we're going to have to redefine reality because <laughs> reality depend- depends as much on a f- this flawed memory of something as it is on something that actually happened. You know. Here I
1: disagree. Okay. I disagree with you? Am I allowed?
0: Yes, absolutely, and I'll, I will rebut. Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Philip K. Dick had an expression that I always liked. Reality is that which does not go away when we cease to believe in it. Mm-hmm. And there is the real world out there, and it has nothing really whatsoever to, to do with whether we believe it's out there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, there's a fact of the matter about Trump's inaugural crowd
2: mm-hmm.
1: when he was inaugurated for his first, and I hope only, term of office.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he may deny it. He may try to convince people that it is something other than what it, in fact, is. But there's a fact of the matter of how many people were actually out there on the esplanade.
2: hmm
1: And in The Thin Blue Line, when I made this movie about the shooting of a Dallas police officer and the miscarriage of justice that Mm -hmm. ensued, there's a fact of the matter. Someone pulled the trigger of that gun and sent five slugs into Robert Wood, this Dallas police officer, and it's not up for grabs. You may think one thing about it. Another person may think something else. But there's a fact of the matter. And our job is to try to figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. In something like the pigeon tunnel, we're asked to deal with something somewhat different. We're asked to think about emotions
2: mm-hmm.
1: and emotional realities. Um the effect of, as you pointed out very early in this interview, the effect of all of his mother's abandoning the family. His mm-hmm. obsession with yeah. her suitcase. What does that suitcase mean? It's like a, I uh, would argue to,
0: in a soft rebuttal, that that suitcase, the thing that it is filled with, is a person's reality. You know, that becomes a reality. The things that you fill that suitcase with. Um, it's like, who gets to write history? History is written by the winners, right? And, uh, even divorced from reality of what happened, the history of something becomes the reality, <laughs> you know, and you, we may have to unpack that, but I'm separating the term reality from truth. And maybe we're talking about the same thing, but using different language. You know, there's a truth to something, which I believe is, um, immutable, you know? Yeah, I agree. And then I think reality is a perception of that truth. That That's the difference that I'm making. And the perception sometimes becomes truth for people, you know? And that's where our job as storytellers many times is to try to now, we have to take that and disassemble it, you know, and get back to the truth of something, you know? Um, but it's funny how uh, things can become real to people. And these this is where flawed memory comes in, which is why I was bringing, one of the things I was bringing up, um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in one of his books. And at first I kind of dismissed it, but I thought, you know what? Actually, memory is fascinating because it can make things real for people, which is why people can pass lie detector tests if something becomes real enough for them, you know? And uh, this whole notion of this, you know, a the confection of his upbringing or whatever in his life. And this whole metaphor, of even double agent, you know, that he, in speaking about Philby, he's completely speaking about himself. You know, I'm saying some things the audience may not be familiar with. He's talking about, uh, Kim Philby, I think was the famous double agent, uh, for MI five or MI six. Was that what it was?
1: Notorious
0: double agent, notorious double agent. So, But the way he's talking about him, he's almost talking about it with admiration in some ways, you know, which I believe he's speaking about himself, (laughs) you know, because at the heart of who he is, is this feeling of being a double agent where you really don't know where your allegiance lies, because there's this imposter syndrome that's happening, I think, in Cornwell, you know, where his father, let me put it like this, or let me ask you this, like his father, it seemed like, was an imposter, with but didn't have imposter syndrome, and his son actually has imposter syndrome and becomes an imposter. But also, he doesn't have the freedom that his dad has, who is happy to be an imposter. You
1: know, <laughs> does that make sense? It does actually. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, David himself really wondered about who he was when he asked me, "Who yeah. are you?" He's also asking that same question about himself. That's exactly right. And it's really, really interesting. You know, in an interview, I want someone to talk. Uh And you have been very cooperative, I might add. (laughs) Um, In an interrogation, inevitably, we're trying to get at something. Uh There's something that we're looking for. Information. Information of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I remember when I was a private detective, I thought of myself, maybe I was a failed filmmaker. I couldn't get money to make a third film. I'd made two. Mm -hmm. I had to work as a private detective in order to earn a living. And I remember that I was investigating a guy and I was telling him. And then I was a filmmaker, and I found often if I showed up someone's doorstep and wanted to interview them, I told them I was a filmmaker, but I had no camera, no crew present, they would just unburden themselves. They would just speak freely. Mm. Well, he doesn't have a camera, so I can say whatever I want to say. David Cornwell talks about it as a kind of... um, Schizophrenia. There, I would be talking to somebody as a filmmaker, but I wasn't really a filmmaker. I was a filmmaker, or I had been a filmmaker, or I wanted to be a filmmaker again, but I wasn't a filmmaker there. I was hired by someone to get information from this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, not for myself, for someone paying me. Mm-hmm to get information. And I remember thinking, well, wait a second, who am I? Who am I in all of this? Am I Errol Morris? Am I just pretending to be Errol Morris? Am I playing Errol Morris? Who in hell am I? Mm -hmm. And maybe in some way we're all doing that constantly in our lives, but when you're a spy. I've never been a spy, but when you're a private detective, you are playing some kind of a strange game mm-hmm. that produces a kind of strange enforced schizophrenia.
0: Yeah, you're you're basically a double agent in some ways. Right? <laughs> Once again.
1: I'm sorry to repeat what you just said, but yes, you're basically a double agent in some some significant respect.
0: Yeah. There's also the theme of betrayal is in here and is in uh, his work. You know, it's, it's kind of at the center of a lot of his work, this theme of betrayal. Yes. Um, what did you think about that?
1: Uh, betrayal is a, f- a fact of life. There are levels of betrayal. I suppose I could have a conversation with Iago about the betrayal of Othello.
0: Yes. But Iago was straightforward about it, at least. You know? Pretty
1: straightforward about yes.
0: it. Yes, he told the audience immediately. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Not so straightforward with Othello about it, but yeah. we kind of have a window into what his underlying motives might be mm-hmm. to Shakespeare. I have been criticized. It's really this odd phenomenon. He wrote this memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, in response to a biography that had been written about him by Adam Sisman, which he didn't like. Uh-huh. So he thought, oh, I can do a better job myself. I'll write The Pigeon Tunnel. And Pigeon Tunnel is a very strange book. Uh-huh. I love it, but it's a strange book. It's these fragments stitched together. Uh-huh. Um, there isn't necessarily any kind of rhyme or reason. There is but not obviously so to the mm-hmm. stories he's telling. Um, he died then about a year and a half after my interview with him. Mm-hmm. And then another book came out recently about all of his affairs, his endless marital infidelities, as if somehow that should have been the focus of my movie. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. Uh, My movie is much more philosophical in tone,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and it's about other things. Yeah, I don't know. I've read the book, the Sisman follow-up book about the marital infidelities, and found it boring. Mm -hmm. Is David Cornwell the first person fucked around? (laughs) I don't think so. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of the pigeon tunnel, were themes that really interested me. Yeah. The nature of truth and memory, mm-hmm. about the yeah. process of turning one's life and the history around uh, one's life mm-hmm. into stories.
0: Yeah.
1: I think those are very powerful themes in the movie.
0: Yeah, Did you get a sense of him um, through this interview of what maybe his outlook ultimately... Is of life, or I should say, was since he's passed away, or or maybe his personal philosophy through any of this, as opposed to the stories he was telling you and how he's relating it.
1: I uh, I mentioned to him, it's very near the end of the film, being an exquisite poet of self hatred, mm. a person deeply suspicious about his own motives, mm-hmm. and a person deeply committed to writing. I find that to be the most fascinating aspect of the whole story. Um, I've been thinking about it. I should write something about it. I've been thinking about, it's a trio of writers, uh, Joseph Conrad, Graham Greene, and John Le Carre, Uh who took the history of the world around them and created these fables. Uh created novels, created stories, uh, extraordinarily powerful stories. My movie starts with the pigeon tunnel itself, his story about the pigeon tunnel. Can
0: you describe that for people? Because it's it's an interesting story.
1: Sure. Um, it's the frontest piece of the book. It's even before the book starts. Mm-hmm. Mac, right on on the first page, even before the first page, that when he was a child, he would be brought by his father to gamble in the casinos in Monte Carlo. And Mm -hmm. on the the casinos, they would raise pigeons. There would be pigeon coops. And there was a tunnel leading out from the coops out over the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And... They would send the pigeons out through these tunnels, these dark tunnels. They would emerge in the dazzling sunlight of the day, <laughs> and mm-hmm. on the roof of the casinos would be shooters.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: I imagine them as disgruntled gamblers um, who would just shoot at them for fun, and they'd kill some of them, they'd wound some of them, and the ones that didn't kill or We just fly back to the roof of the casino and this whole process would just be repeated on another day. Mm -hmm. So what's the parable? What's the metaphor here that we're all engaged in some infernal, endless repetition of everything Mm -hmm. ended by death?
0: Yeah, it was, it was a bit, it was very cynical and, I wasn't sure whether he made that up or maybe embellished it possibly a bit because it seemed just too perfect, this pigeon. (laughs) You know, i like, there had to have been a part where it was embellished or whatever. But an interesting aspect to me, there's, uh, when I say cynicism, I don't, I'm not sure where he's coming from in this. Is he identifying with the pigeons or with the people shooting the pigeons? You know,
1: there you go. I right. can't
0: tell you. I believe he's identifying with the, with the one shooting the pigeons. Um, because um, there does seem to be a bit of cynicism. Like, who's the sucker, in other words? He's, this is a guy who grew up in the confidence game. If you grew up in
1: the confidence game, those pigeons are suckers. Yep. They're doing the bidding of someone, somewhere. I say to him very early on in the movie that he has a universe of uh, string pullers and those who are manipulated, Mm -hmm. um, dupes, people whose strings are pulled by others. Mm. And it's a strange universe. It's a universe of manipulators and the manipulated. Yes. By the end of the story, the end of the pigeon tunnel, the book, the memoir, Mm -hmm. he ends it. With a far weirder story, which I loved. The story of Rudolf Hess, Mm. number two guy in the Third Reich. Right. Right near the top after Hitler, who commandeers a plane in 1941. This is right following the Blitz.
0: The Reich is still writing very high, yes.
1: he. commandeers a plane and flies to Scotland. Presumably he's trying, no one really knows what the hell's going on, presumably he's trying to create a peace between the British government and the Third Reich. He's nuts, or he's trying to do something almost impossible to believe. Uh And for me, I've, was familiar with the story before I read The Pigeon Tunnel. Mm -hmm. It's one of the great mysteries of World War II. You can pick up countless books with countless versions of why Hess flew to London, flew to Scotland. He ended up in Scotland um, without any, any real answer. One thing I should remind your listeners, with history... There is facts of the matter, but we may never be able to lay our hands on them. Right, evidence is exactly. lost. People lie. Yeah, memory it can decay. It can it can be manipulated,
0: changed, removed, contemporized. So at the
1: end, at the end, he tells us that at the, the inside of of history might be some kind of just grim joke. Mm. And this is not a universe of. String pullers and those whose strings are pulled. This is a universe of absurdity. Mm-hmm. A universe where history, and I suggested to him near the end of the movie, where history is chaos. Yeah. It's just no rhyme or reason, but just contrary motivations, confusing mm-hmm. people. And look at the world around us at the moment. Mm hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find our current world very, very, very frightening. Yeah. Very chaotic, frightening, confused. My term for it is I want my mommy politics. Mm -hmm. That The only thing I can think of doing is crawling under the bed and repeating again and again, Mommy, I don't like any of this. (laughs) Please, can you make it stop? I can't really stand it anymore. It's
0: funny, you spoke to Robert McNamara, who was a Secretary of Defense, I believe, under uh, uh, John F. Kennedy.
1: And Johnson, both.
0: And uh, was, uh, you know, busy. During the same time that uh, La Carré or Cornwell was busy during some of his spying, you know, um, who did you feel you learned more of an accurate (laughs) recounting of those times (laughs) from McNamara or, or uh, or the writer spy?
1: I sometimes say I make movies so I can learn something. Yeah. And I learned a lot from both of them. Mm hmm. One thing that I learned from Le Carre, it's the second chapter. It's very early on in the pigeon tunnel. He's a young civil servant, mm-hmm. also a spy, right in Bonn. And this is nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm. This is just before the wall goes up, the Berlin yeah. Wall. This is mm-hmm. the Bundes Republic. It's the new government in Germany, post war. He notices that many of the officials of this government were important Nazis, right? And he asks himself this question: Wait a minute, didn't we fight a war about this kind of thing? Uh, why are there Nazis in this government? <laughs> There's this guy named Hans Globke, who was one of the guys who originated the Nuremberg Laws. These are laws mm-hmm. that allowed for discrimination, horrible discrimination against Jews, and are often credited with making the Holocaust possible. Mm -hmm. And here this guy is in the government. Wait a minute, didn't we fight a war to prevent this kind of thing? And he talks about enforced forgetting. I love that term. I can be as cynical as the next guy. Mm-hmm. I think I'm even more cynical than David, I might add, because I sometimes think that the study of history is the study of the elision of history. Mm-hmm. The study of the denial of history, mm-hmm. the basement of history. We watch that going on around us. God forbid that people should talk about racism in America. Oh, you wouldn't want to do that. There is no such thing. That never happened.
0: Yeah, the erasure of things is amazing. And you know, <laughs> I love that all those Nazis are there. And Kennedy is like, Ich bin ein Berliner. <laughs> yeah. which, which actually translates to, I am a jelly donut, if you're going to be very uh, yeah. specific about it.
1: I mean, if I had a choice, I'd like to be a jelly donut, too.
0: Exactly. If it's that or a, or a commie, what are you going to be? A jelly donut or a commie? Come on. Come on, Errol, which one are you going to be? <laughs> but it is interesting. He also said uh, during that time he felt both sides were inventing the enemy they needed, which is another dualistic comment, double agent almost comment, you know. I don't know if he really believed that, you know. I it seems like in some cases he it felt like he did have a moral compass when he talked about Stalinism and kind of betraying his friend, but at the same time kind of believe this both sides-ism.
1: I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. And it also tells you that there's a certain kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. People do believe opposites at the same time. hmm Maybe we're all really extremely badly wired. hmm And, um... That's why I sometimes think of him as less cynical than myself. Mm -hmm. He can tell us that he refused to meet Philby. He goes to a writer's conference in the Soviet Union. He's in Moscow. Mm -hmm. He's told by the guy who organized the conference, you know, Hey, uh, you could have dinner with Kim Philby. Philby is now <laughs> defected. Yes, you can have dinner with the traitor. Right, you can have dinner with the traitor, <laughs> right. and um, and he's not just any traitor. He's the most yeah. famous traitor of that era, and he's represented in a lot of John le Carré's fiction. Yes, he is the. The most famous double agent
0: of all. Tinker Taylor's soldier spy, I think is where.
1: There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he says, No, I don't want to meet him. Mm-hmm. I don't want to meet him. What do you mean you don't want to meet him? And David explains to me sorry, I go back between John Le Carré and David Cornwall. No. Forgive great. me. No, that's okay. Uh, David explains, I couldn't see myself having dinner with the Queen's representative one night and with the Queen's traitor on another. And for him, he infiltrated a communist student organization when he was at Oxford and betrayed them, betrayed the guy who ran it, betrayed the students who were members of it. Because he was working for the British government. And when asked, didn't you feel bad? I asked him, didn't you feel bad about betraying your fellow students? Mm -hmm. And the answer was, no, no, I did not. Why? They're worshiping Stalin and Stalin. What's that word again? Stalin is evil. It was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so, despite all of his cynicism uh, cynicism and what you call, and maybe not inaccurately, you call his nihilism, there is a strange, behind all of it, this moral compass. Mm -hmm. Queen and country, right Mm -hmm. and wrong, good and evil. And I actually find that to be the most interesting thing about my film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can I say nice things about my own work? Am Please,
0: let's say. I want people to watch it, by the way. Oh, well, thank
1: you. Yes. I'd like them to watch it too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, here he can tell you that, that there's no heart of the matter. There's no meaning to history, that history may be complete chaos and absurdity. And at the same time, he can tell you that there's, a moral compass here, and uh, that there is right and wrong, that there's good and evil. Is this a contradiction? Maybe. Maybe not. But it's most certainly something to think about.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, you're talking about what's going on now in the world. It's become harder and harder since World War II, let's pick, as as a starting point you know, to cleanly look at who's right and who's wrong in a lot of these affairs, you know, and I think the way the world has gotten smaller is one of the reasons for that, you know, the way that information is processed so quickly, people can identify with people in ways that they haven't been able to. You know, you can look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, you know, you can go online and be able to identify with either side instantly by seeing personal accounts of what's going on. You know, you, you've never had that before, that type of, you know, reach to the the personal experience of something as opposed to the government telling you what's going on or getting an official account of something where the sides are chosen for you and you have no choice in that, you know, uh now it, it's a little messier, you know, it's like, we're, where should your allegiances be? I think a lot of people who don't have a dog in the fight, let's say, um, aren't sure even what to say about <laughs> some of these, this type of conflict. It's it's really I've
1: never experienced that in my lifetime. It is pretty clear that the internet changed everything in ways yeah. that you don't even fully understand. But there's a glut of information coming mm-hmm. from. Myriad sources. Yeah. Millions of sources, literally. And it's almost like we're exposed to the chaos of history. Mm-hmm. In a way, I think I'm just repeating what you just said, but <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> in, a, in a way that, that has never really happened before. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was growing up, in the fifties and sixties, um, you know, there were the people on the networks that processed the news, uh, put it in easy to digest, uh, tablets that you could relate, mm-hmm. you could understand. And today we live in a sea, a, a tsunami of information mm-hmm. and it's frightening. It's interesting. I've heard that my movie criticized because I don't tell people, well, what's the truth?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, guess what? Most of the time, I don't know. I pursue it. I'm interested in it. Mm-hmm. Do think it's important. Absolutely. Yes, I do. But it's a consideration of of that sea that we find ourselves in. And all of the impediments, all of the obstacles to understanding what's going on around us. Yeah. That's what I sometimes feel like hiding under the bed.
0: No, I know what you mean. I think a lot of criticisms, you know, and I'm not even saying necessarily of your work in particular, but of many things... many of uh, statements or work out there, criticisms to me, it's not so much people looking for the truth, I think. I think people really want a confirmation of their opinion, you know, or their agenda more than anything else. You know, they're they're like, why is he not confirming what I already believe? You know, (laughs) because the, and you know this, I'm sure you know this too. I mean, you were a private detective and you've seen some ugly things. And I know you've probably have heard some really, ugly things about the human experience, you know, that a lot of people can't take. Like, let me just veer off just for a quick second and come back. Sure. Like slavery, for example, in this country, Errol, people still don't know how brutal slavery really was. They don't. And you know why? Because they can't take it. They really, they cannot believe how unbelievable, brutal human beings were to another and the level of brutality that was visited upon Slaves, Because people can't take it. They just they they would not believe it. You know, there are some things we get glimpses of, you know, because in some cases we have photographs and that type of stuff. But you really cannot take the absolute brutality that that uh, was visited upon people. And, you know, there are certain things about the world that I believe people really cannot handle. You know, they really They can't accept it. One of those things is the brutality of war. People are not equipped to deal with the actual brutalities of war. They're not. They think they are, but they are not. You know, and how brutal human beings can be to one another. You know, when it's been, as you say, put in tablet form and compartmentalized, it's easier for people to choose sides. You know, but as Lyndon Johnson found out, once the television cameras were showing us what was happening in Vietnam real time for the first time. (laughs) I <laughs> he could not control the narrative and people had a different experience of that, you know. But so we live in a time now where people are dealing face on with the brutality of war. And I think people don't know how to properly process that. It, that's what it feels like to me.
1: Maybe there is no way to process it.
0: Exactly. Are we supposed to? I mean, some. These things that are so brutal, why, maybe it's good we (laughs) we were hidden from those things. I don't know, you know, it has, if it's at the service of something, I mean, who's to say? I mean, when it was at the service of getting rid of Nazis, we were all fine with being sheltered from that experience, you know. But if we don't know what it's at the service for, what is the purpose of this? We're in a, we're in big trouble. As you say, you want, you know, you want to get under the covers and, Ask for mommy. Yeah. (laughs) I do. So it's funny being someone like Cornwell, going back to him, you know, there is kind of a getting back to the mother analogy, this suitcase that he had that was his mother's because he, he was trying to process this leaving, how she left him. And so he kept the suitcase. So I believe he could pack things into the suitcase, which served him well to give him a mythology of that departure so he could deal with it because There was no other connection that he had, you know, and I think there's this suitcase that we all need to have (laughs) that we can put things in (laughs) to give us a way to deal with these horrible things because they're too horrible. You know, and sometimes the Internet, it kind of opens that suitcase and (laughs) just empties the things you put in it and we have to deal with what's really going on here. You know, it seems like it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, the suitcase is a very powerful for me image. Yeah, me too. The fact that his mother clearly abandoned the family yeah. for good reason, he tells us, because she could no longer stand his father's infidelities, his unending lying. But it's still, when all is said and done, it's still amounted to abandonment, particularly yeah. for a small child. Again, one of the things that I admire about his art, the books he created, the Mm -hmm. stories that he told, a lot of his nonfiction, by the way, he is a fabulous nonfiction writer as Mm -hmm. well as a fiction writer. It takes you into the mysteries of his life, our lives, life in general, Mm -hmm. and it's the mysteries that fascinate me. As a filmmaker, yes, I love truth. I love the investigation of truth, the pursuit of truth. But I love just sheer human insanity. Maybe that's a weird thing to say, but it's Mm -hmm. what keeps me going. Maybe today I'll hear something even crazier than what I heard yesterday. So stick around and listen. Yes. Well, we will
0: stick around and listen, especially if if you're giving us something. Um Errol Morris, you guys, the the pigeon tunnel. It's this is one of those things you should watch a couple of times because it's the unveiling of somebody in front of you, but you don't know exactly what's being unveiled. When you watch it, there's layers to this that are interesting. You know, especially if you're interested in these these subjects. But I'm fascinated with people who have spied in that type of thing. Like the writer part of him is, of course, interesting, but the spy part is fascinating to me because you got to put that stuff somewhere, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it <can't laughs> it's got to go somewhere. So I'm like, okay, where did it go? You know, and obviously for him, it went into his writing, uh, but what are going to do? Uh, I feel like part of what, you know, one of the tropes we were saying, uh Well, I'll end with this, uh, see what your take on this is, too, is, you know, that that leader, you know, Philby, that he was kind of writing about, you know, that the leader is the one who is the betrayer as opposed to someone not as important. And it's kind of become a trope in some movies and stuff. But also, I feel like we're at a place where we expect the least from our leaders now than I think ever before. Like we almost expect them to disappoint us.
1: Yeah, disappointment has become, I guess, a major feature of life, only mm-hmm. really political life. Um, the problems of the world seem most of the time irremediable. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Gaza, the, the problem with um, Palestinians versus Jews. Or is global warming, or one of hundreds of different social problems? Um, do I believe that governments can solve anything anymore? Wait a minute, you're going to you're going to make me look pessimistic, and you know what? I am.
0: <laughs> well. I will always be optimistic about trying to find the truth. How about that? (laughs)
1: That Sounds like a good policy to me.
0: (laughs) There you go. There you go. Well, the pigeon tunnel, you guys, it's on Apple Plus. Have a look, like I'm saying, not once, but you got to watch it a couple of times, I believe, because it's a real fascinating conversation. Another gem from Errol Morris. Thank you so much, Errol. So great meeting you and talking to you.
1: Thank you so much. I enjoyed this immensely. Thank you.